Hi, everybody. Welcome to Shasai Podcast, conversations between scholars from around the world who study childhood, youth, and related institutions historically. As an official production of the Society for the History of Children and Youth, you can subscribe to these shows through iTunes or Google Play. Written and visual materials associated with each episode are available at our website, shcy.org. Enjoy. So, hi, everybody. Um, I'm Christine Alexander, and I teach in the history department at the University of Lethbridge in Blackfoot Territory in Southern Alberta, Canada. And I'm really excited to be here uh, on the SHCY, Society for the History of Children and Youth, uh, featured books podcast talking to Dr. Ishida Pandey, who teaches in the history department at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario. So we're going to be talking about Ishita's new book, Sex, Law, and the Politics of Age, Child Marriage in India between 1891 and 1937, that was published last year in 2020 with Cambridge University Press. So thank you so much for joining me virtually today, uh, Ishida, to talk about this really, uh, yeah, brilliant and generative piece of scholarship. Um, and so I guess the first question that I would like to start with is a really general one. And that would be just to tell us a little bit about yourself um, and about how you came to this project. Thank you so much, Christine, for this invitation to talk to you about my book. Um, and uh, as Christine mentioned, I am an associate professor in history at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario, and I'm grateful to live and work on Haudenosaunee and Anishinaabe territory. Um, so I came to this project, um, I guess there's a few ways of answering that question. Uh, and one of the things that I came to realize in writing the acknowledgements to the book after the book was done is that I am, like most people I grew up with, the direct uh, descendant of child wives on both sides of my family. And my, both my maternal and paternal uh, grandmothers were married before the age of 18. And, um, and so what was curious to me is that they were techni technically not child wives in the legal sense of the term when they had contracted their marriages. But um, looking back in time, when I think about it, that's what they were, basically child wives. And my maternal grandmother had children starting at the ages of 15 and went on to have uh, 10 children. Um, so I think that was, uh, it was interesting to come to that realization after having written that entire book, but reflecting back on it, I think there was always this curious lack of fit between how I saw my grandmother and how I saw my family and what I read about as the lives of child wives uh, in India uh, during the 20th century. Um, and I think it was this um, sort of curious lack of fit that drove my interest in the history of child marriages. Uh, so that was one path and one way of describing how I came to the project. But of course there are sort of other parts that historians take to uh, their projects, as you know. And one of it was, one of which was, as always, 
completing my first book, uh, the last chapter in my previous book, which is about uh, medicine and public health in India, is actually the Age of Consent Act and the use of medical evidence um, in trying to ascertain uh, what is an appropriate age of consent for uh, young women. And, um, and there were a lot of unfinished questions that I had after I had completed writing that book. And I had also come across a lot of very interesting and curious sources that I did not know what to do with then. And I wanted to use this next book to go back to those sources and we can talk about it later. And the third path I think was sort of a historiographical and intellectual curiosity. Uh, and as you know, I got interested in the field of history of childhood, and that's how I met you, Christine, um, and uh, as well as the history of sexuality. And what uh, I found interesting in everything that I'd read about child marriages in India is that somehow there was a surprising lack of engagement with the field of the history of childhood. Um, so it was, it was curious to me that when in writing about child marriages and child wives, we would not theorize the child itself in a way that historians of childhood have done in other contexts. And also this sort of lack of discussion with uh, questions generated by historians of sexuality as though child marriage is not very fundamentally part of the history of sexuality as much as it is a part of the history of you know, women's history or gender history and so on. So I think those were the sort of intellectual, personal and sort of methodological reasons that I wanted to write this book. And that's how I came to it. Oh, thank you. That was such a rich answer. And you raised a couple of things that I definitely want to come back to, including the question of evidence. Um, and historiography. There are some really, really, I think, cool and important interventions here that are, uh, you know, I would say they're obviously of interest to South Asian scholars, but to scholars of childhood and sexuality too. So the book uh, really revolves around this one particular piece of legislation um, that I'm sure we're going to hear about in a minute. Um, and it, it raises all these important points about time, age, uh, child marriage, as you said, sexuality, colonial history, but also these really vexing big questions about capacity, consent uh, in both legal and moral senses, um, biology as well, and the question of what makes a child a child and when does a child stop becoming a child? So I'm, I'm wondering if uh, you can tell us a little bit more about those big questions, the big kinds of questions that the book poses and the big arguments or interventions that it makes. Absolutely. So um, as, as, you, as you just mentioned, the book is what I call a biography of a single piece of law, right? Which is a law passed in 1929 in India, which uh, defined what child marriages were for the first time, uh, saying a child marriage is a marriage where either party is uh, is below a certain is is a child, and then went on to define a child. A child is a person who, if male, is under fourteen years of age. 
if female is under 12 years of age, right? And what I did in the book is really historicize each of those terms and take those definitions very seriously. So I ask in the book, what is a child marriage and what makes something legible to us as historians as a child marriage, right? What is a child? Uh, and not only with an eye to sort of mapping the shifting definitions of the child that are evident from the letter of the law itself, but also to think about how we as historians in looking back in time, when we say we're looking for children, who are we looking for? What makes certain folks in the past legible to us as children? And how does the law in fact continue to circumscribe even our understanding of the child, even in the present looking back into the past, right? And similarly, I wanted to historicize that very notion of age that is, that actually exists as a problem even in the letter of the law that I was studying, right? So it was not taken as a transparent matter of fact because the law itself then goes on to define how age is to be measured according to which precise calendar, how are ours to be, how are hours, days, months, etc., to be reckoned with, right? So all of these things were so much in flux in the time when the law came into existence. And it was each of these questions that I take up in the book to a certain extent. Um, so instead of studying child marriages as a problem, the book sort of reflects on when, how, and why does child marriage become a problem to be resolved by the law, a sort of moral crisis that needs to be resolved, uh, a political problem that, you know, every, you know, in, in India, in the national legislature, um, the women's movement, social reformers that everybody's engaging with and how they're using child marriage to, as an occasion to talk about other political problems uh, at that time. Um, and then the more important question uh, is who is a child, right? And so in each of the chapters, I try to um, arrive at an answer by looking at historical evidence along a set of registers. So um, how, how did um, medical doctors who were called in to bear witness to the violence done to say child wives in the past uh, recognize a child? How did that um, legibility of the child match up with how the child was defined in the law? Um, and what I end up arguing in the book is that, you know, our understandings of childhood are circumscribed by the law. And there's something about the nexus between law and biology that I try to trace in the book that makes the child appear as a natural entity. And it's easy to forget that the child is not a naturalized entity, even though as historians of childhood, we have worked so hard to sort of historic, you know, be historically specific when we are talking about childhood and the child. And one of the examples of that, that I have in my book of the naturalization of the child that persists in our scholarly imagination is feminist scholarship. 
on things like child marriages, right? Where um, I actually end up arguing that just like law and medicine of feminist scholarship can be thought of analogously as a um, as a register that natural continues to manufacture the child as natural even in the present, right? And um, and finally, um, what I hope comes across in the book is my um, keen interest in using age as a category of analysis, but also to historicize age and to ask, you know, when, how is age manufactured? How is age manufactured by uh, bureaucratic processes? Um, uh, how is age manufactured in the census? How is age manufactured by um, the production of forensic evidence? Um, and, and to also uh, think about why age became important to um, our identities, our legal identities, but even more generally to modern identity as such at a particular historical moment. Um, so I end up kind of arguing that legal norms and moral codes surrounding age that are taken for granted pretty much, I'd say around the world now, were created at the nexus of um, the colonial and modern states bureaucratic procedures and a narrowly juridical understanding of the human that derives from liberal jurisprudence. Um, and so I argue that the emergence of age as foundational to modern identity and morality um, has something to do with colonial histories. And also that uh, in using age as a category of analysis as social scientists and as historians, we must remain mindful of this fraught history. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, thank you. So, uh, so it's clear, I would say, from my enthusiastic responses uh, to your responses, how much I loved this book. Um, and I think that your point uh, about the ways in which feminist scholarship, which has proven to be really good at reckoning with and deconstructing and problematizing other analytical categories, things like uh, race and gender, age, there's something about it that, is, that it is seen as natural still by these really critical minds. And so the fact that you are um, drawing attention to that, I think is really, really exciting and important. Um, and I think that it relates to, so I also wanna make sure, I'm not sure that it has come up specifically in our conversation, but for those uh, listeners who are not as familiar, perhaps, with the details of the particular history that we're talking about, so it's the so the particular piece of legislation that uh, the book is a biography of is the Child Marriage Restraint Act that was passed, I think, in 1929. And the concept that you use that I think is sort of uh, that is in a sense what you have just been talking about that I think is really, really a generative and I know is going to shape some of the work that I am in the process of starting about settler colonialism is the idea of an epistemic contract on age. So uh, I think you've defined it for us in the answer that you previously gave, but I'm wondering if there's anything else you might want to say about it. And if you could also talk a bit more 
about the specific uh, and different kinds of evidence that you used when researching this book. So I was definitely expecting lots of, I was expecting legal cases, I was expecting legislation, but there's a whole bunch of, but this is a subject that is being debated everywhere. It's clear in the you know, late 19th and early 20th century South Asia, but more globally. So yeah, I'd love to hear about sources. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I'll start with the epistemic contract on age, which is just a term that I borrow from critical race theorists as well as post-colonial feminist critiques who have written very generatively about the limitations of um, uh, our understandings of the human, which draw more or less from li liberal legal understandings of the human and therefore our understandings of rights, of agency, of justice, et cetera, are completely reliant on this one particular understanding of the human. And uh, as you sort of pointed out in your um, question to me, we have been quite careful in deconstructing or more careful in deconstructing race and gender and denaturalizing those categories. And we have been less careful about historicizing and therefore denaturalizing age. Uh, and what I suggest in my book is that age therefore continues to sort of serve as a proxy for naturalizing those differences of race and gender and religious community that we hesitate to think of as natural or we've learned not to think of as natural, but somehow age stands in, in the place of those sort of other categories um, and remains invisible. And therefore we fail to notice the work that it does in terms of a, you know, continuing to buttress racial difference or gender difference or uh, religious or communal difference, right? So, so that's that's the answer to the question about the epistemic contract on age. And the second part of you know why I wanted to call it the epistemic contract on age was also to think about. Uh, communities and societies which have not been as enthusiastic about embracing age as the fundamental basis for uh, provide for understanding agency rights consent etc that we 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 did in the past and perhaps even the present continue to think of those um, subgroups as uh, failing to meet up to certain standards as not signing up to the epistemic contract and therefore being incapable of recognizing all of these values of you know, providing rights, right? Um, of recognizing consent as the fundamental basis of any human interaction uh, of the sexual contract or any other form of contract, et cetera, right? Um, and, um, and I guess, with that, coming to the question of evidence and sources via that question is kind of interesting because it forces me to think about how each of the chapters actually is about the epistemic contract in some ways. So the, so the sources, as you said, I started with legislation and that's the obvious place to start. And I realized that um, as all legal historians do that there's a huge gap between the letter of the law and the law in practice. So I started looking at cases uh, and I started by looking at cases that came up before high courts in India, in several parts of the country. And from there, 
I sort of started pursuing the questions that were generated by the cases themselves. So how does one uh, provide evidence of age in a courtroom in the early 20th century? Uh, surprisingly, um, sometimes even, um, it, it, even the census can be brought in, um, right? So I've, I've looked at, in my book, I look at the census, not so much as a sort of um, um, a document that allows me to gauge how, how many people were of what ages at what point of time or to count child wives. But to what I did was sort of read the chapters on age itself recorded by actuaries uh, that went on to reveal that age was not actually taken as a matter of fact or taken as stable even by those who were collecting it. So that's uh, sort of, so, so, so reading the census reading uh, forensic textbooks, which uh, are guiding um, medical experts in courts to uh, give evidence on how old someone is. So in my book, I look at uh, forensic textbooks and pour over these sort of charts of dent dentition and sort of um, uh, charts providing height and weight that allow you to then come up with an approximate uh, answer as to how much an individual, how old an individual is. Um, and um, so that's sort of one part of the, you know, the medical evidence that I ended up looking at along with the legal evidence. And then there, what you might broadly call sort of cultural tracts or artifacts such as novels. So I read uh, novels in Hindi and Bengali, um, uh, which are the Indian languages I know, talking about child marriages. And these prove to be sort of, um, provide me with surprising insight as to how child marriages were constituted as a problem in the past and how that constitution of the problem was very different from how we see child marriage as a problem in the present. Because a lot of these novels seem to be concerned with the plight of the boy child, for instance, and the horrors visited upon this hapless boy who was married against his wishes to some precocious girl and, um, you know, and the tragedy that befell him. Um, and so, 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 so I trace in some of the chapters in my book sort of these curious figures that don't seem to us to be the sort of natural focus for um, a history of child marriages, which is, you know, the boy child, which is often figured on, on the girl child, for instance. And then, um, and as I started pursuing the history of age, I looked at uh, sex education and sex manuals and what can really be even defined as pornography. Uh, where the ages of um, a couple or age differences um, between a, you know, a boy and a girl were taken up as a matter of um, very explicit commentary. Uh, so in the sex education books, for instance, um, I, I write about sort of age graded sex education and what that means in terms of um, being normalized into thinking about oneself as a child or to think about uh, childhood sexuality in certain ways, but also 
um, sort of pornography where um, there were sort of surprising uh, references to uh, temporality, to the right time for having sex, one sh when should one be having sex in terms of one's age, but also at what time during the day, et cetera, which I um, realized was quite um, intrinsically caught up with my interest in thinking about age and temporality. Um, so, so yes, yeah, so the source base kind of kept expanding uh, in this way, as it often does. Yes. Oh, that's, yeah, fascinating. And I think that the things that you are able to do with this wide range of um, different kinds of textual evidence are really exciting. And I think conceptually, something that has stuck with me uh, in particular is this idea of the autoptic child. And I think that this is a concept that historians, uh, scholars of other disciplines who are interested in young people um, could find perhaps to be particularly useful. So I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about this idea of the autoptic child. Um, thanks for sort of picking up on that um, term because um, I've wondered about using it sometimes. <laughs> so the autoptic child really just means the obvious child in the sense that autoptic derives from the autopsy as in, um, you know, you can cut up a body and you can discover the truth about that body. And it therefore means something that's evident to sight, right? So you can just see the truth of this object. Um, so, um, so one of the chapters on, of my book is called The Autoptic Child, where I literally look at the autopsy as a technology where, um, where medical doctors are basically being defining and debating what a child is and what are the signs of childhood that can be encountered in the body itself. Um, and uh, in that chapter, I look at... Um, the, the, you know, the autopsy report that was produced um, by the death of a child wife who died at the age of 11 or 12 in the late 19th century. And that case provided the occasion for raising the age of consent in India in 1891. And it's a very sort of prominent case. But in revisiting that case, um, I was sort of, mm, more less interested in the legislation, but but more in the sort of argumentative logics that were being used to to sort of arrive at a scientific medicalized understanding of what a child is, right? Uh, so a seemingly indisputable understanding of the child. And so what I go on to argue in the book is that we are sort of living under the shadow of that mode of argumentation and the autoptic child, the child that is obvious to us. Um, in ways that we fail to recognize. And I return to that idea in the epilogue of my book where I write about a case from 2017. Um, and this is, uh, this again involves sort of a young woman who uh, arrives from Southeast Asia to O'Hare Airport in Chicago. And she says she's here to meet her fiance. Um, but she, is obviously not a woman, but is a child to the eyes of the border agents who encounter her first. Uh, and so I think 
so I think that's where I think perhaps the idea of the autoptic child becomes clearer that we all know or think we know what a child looks like. And this is what happens to the border agents where somebody comes in and she says that I'm 19, but she doesn't look 19 to them. So they're, they, they, they're afraid that she's a victim of child trafficking. So they are going to have to save her. So what they end up doing, and this is a fascinating case, is that they end up uh, readjusting her date of birth uh, so that she is now a child in, in legal terms because she is below the age of 18. Uh, they resort to medical technologies that I write about in the book that were prevalent in the early 20th century and obviously are now as well, where they look at evidence of dentition and height, et cetera, and they come up with um, an age range that she could belong to, but then they go with what is obvious to them. So even though the medical evidence suggests that she could be anywhere between the ages of 15 and 19, i.e. she could have been telling the truth about her age, but they, to them, she's obviously a child, right? So I think that's kind of the concept that I play with uh, by sort of rooting the idea of the child in the autopsy in the first part of the book, but then using the autoptic child as a concept that is that, that sort of haunts us in the present, uh, no matter how much we have historicized the child in scholarship. Yeah, yeah. I'm so glad that you brought up that bit from the epilogue because I was certainly going to do it otherwise. I just, the continuities and the use of forensics, things like x-rays to really, really try hard to make these definitive biological, but also moral claims about who and what is a child is really striking. And I have to say that I'm looking forward to talking about this the next time I teach uh, my undergraduate class on the history of childhood, because one of the things that I find, and a lot of the people who take that class are, uh, they're either in, uh, in the education program already at the University of Lethbridge, or they want to become teachers. And one thing that they're certain of is that they know what a child is. And that so often, and it's, and I think, you know, developmentalism is part of this as well. And these ideas about science and medicine. And I think that the work that your book does in, yeah, raising questions about all of that. Is and if I could just jump in there, because I, and I think that case was so interesting to me because that you can't think of a better example of age standing in for prejudices that come from. Yes. From race, from national difference, uh, from you know, of economic background, etc., gender, all of these assumptions are getting couched as an argument about age, right? And the sort of messing about with age that therefore needs to happen in order to naturalize um, what is essentially a completely prejudicial response to somebody's appearance, right? Absolutely, absolutely. And I think, you know, just thinking about those nameless border agents at O'Hare Airport, I think in 2017, I would just love to go back and hand them a copy of, 
of Nixie Rett's book, American Child Bride, for example, which just does such a brilliant job of showing that, you know, this is not a, this is not a so-called social problem that is uh, only involves, uh, you know, non-white uh, so-called foreign others, that yeah, it's a much more complicated story than that. So I think on the on on that note of of useful, uh, interesting, exciting complications, I was also really struck by the ways in which you use queer theory throughout the book, and especially with respect to questions about time and temporality. I I loved seeing you engage with uh, Catherine von Stockton's work as well, um, and especially her notion of reading sideways. So, uh, so yeah, could you tell us a little bit about how, about what uh, working with queer theory allowed you to do with this book? And also in terms of methodological uh, innovations, what is reading sideways? And how does the book read sideways? To me, uh, the way I was thinking about childhood and child marriages was always derived from queer theory in as much as, um, it, my understanding of the child as a linchpin of modern sexuality, as I say in the book, um, it, it derives from Foucault and Foucault's theorization of the child as one of the four figures in modern sex, sexuality, right? Um, so, um, so I guess, I mean, to me, that understanding of the child is already queer right, or it sort of owes its genealogy to uh, Foucault, and, and then I sort of wanted to pursue that further through, you know, critiques of Foucault, and uh, through queer theorists like Catherine uh, Bond Stockton, who has written directly about the child, right, um, but, and, and, and her work was very influential in how I was thinking, even in terms of method, but also, uh, thinking about um, queer historians who have written quite boldly about child sexuality and have questioned the use of age or age stratification as a sort of um, a foundational uh, logic to the organization of sexual morality in societies across the world, right? So I think it ethically sort of owed it, it sort of, I mean, the, the project I think was generated by the engagement with queer thought mm -hmm. in pretty fundamental ways. And I decided to pursue it um, more explicitly, the more I kept looking at the sources and how um, I was being held uh, in my reading of sources by engaging with queer theorists, including uh, Jack Halberstam's work, for instance, on reproductive temporality and um, so on. So uh, queer theory came, allowed me to sort of take some of uh, the post-colonial feminist critique uh, or critical race, you know, some cr critical race theory and post-colonial feminist theory and the insight generated there and sort of make sexuality front and center and a crucial part of those theoretical insights and interventions. Um, and in terms of um, reading sideways, um, I loved, um, I loved 
to think about that term as I was reading, because <laughs> what it allowed me to do is to match the argument about trying not to think developmentally about the child in writing about the child with thinking critically about history, i.e. not thinking in with progressivist notions of time, not think teleologically in writing the history of the child. Um, so the, the, so the, the subject of inquiry and the sort of me method of writing then kind of match each other. And it, it helped me to think of, think of her work as sort of allowing me to keep those two ideas in mind at the same time, right? In reading sideways. But um, I guess what it also allowed me to do, um, and as I say in the book, is to look at strange sources as relevant to uh, the history that I was trying to write. So things that I talk about as having fallen to the wayside and not being noticed as relevant to the history of child marriages and therefore to the history of childhood in India that then become quite crucial and central to the history of child marriages in India. And some of this, and this includes some of the sources that I've mentioned which somehow had have been neglected um, in the past scholarship, which is sort of the pornographic novels or the, or the sort of um, social reformist novels that are uh, focused on the boy child and not the girl child, etc. Also just um, lost pieces of legislation which went nowhere and so we haven't written about them because uh, if something doesn't go anywhere we tend to sort of forget that it was very uh, intrinsically part of the history uh, that we are trying to write. Um, so, um, so I write about some um, pieces of legislation that regulated not ages of marriage, but age differences in marriage, or that prohibited old men from marrying instead of trying to prohibit, so, or instead of trying to legislate what the minimum age of marriage should be. And these are all sort of interesting things that exist in the archives, which to me, uh, not that you can't find them any other way, but I think thinking about reading sideways is what allowed me to sort of realize the centrality of some of these documents to the story that I was trying to tell. Um, and I think what I do say in the book uh, and I is that reading sideways is also an ethical practice of letting go of some of the certainties that come with um, committing to the liberal juridical categories that we let stand for our entire moral universe, uh, the liberal juridical categories that have become our categories of analysis. And this includes age and it includes agency, it includes consent, right? And to be able to say that these are not the endpoints of history in any natural way, and these are not what we need to be looking for, that we can in fact uh, delink the relationship between age and agency say, which is sort of crucial to our, our understanding of childhood and children, right? Um, and that we can then, you know, write histories of things like, you know, fraught problems like child marriage in a slightly different way. And you brought up Nick Siritz's book and that's what he does as well, right? Yes. 
Yes, absolutely. So I think, and just hearing you make those last couple of points, I think was also a useful reminder that it's not only say, um, feminist historians, people who's, uh, who I think if you ask them, they would probably say that their main interest was history of adults, uh, but it's historians of childhood too, who can, I would say, fall victim to this uh, liberal uh, understanding of a child or a, an, idea, an idea that the child is knowable and, and based in biology or a certain understanding of time. And so I think it's interesting that we're having this conversation at this particular moment in time in the spring of 2021, because uh, about six months ago in the American Historical Review, you were part of a roundtable, uh, a group of scholars who were invited to respond to an article by a historian called Sarah Mazza. And her article, uh, the subtitle I think was Historians and the Problems of Childhood. This is the October 2020 issue of the AHR. And so it's really uh, an interesting and has, it has provoked a lot of debate and I would say sometimes angry response from historians of childhood. Uh, but rather than rehash the critiques that Mazza makes of the field of the history of childhood and youth, uh, you can find more about that elsewhere on SHCY podcasts and on the commentary section of the website. I'm interested in hearing a bit more from you uh, whether based on what you wrote in the pages of the AHR or thinking more broadly about the history of childhood and youth as a field. And as a field in this particular moment in time, how would you characterize it? What is exciting? What is promising? What are some problems that we need to deal with? Um, and what kinds of, yeah, what kinds of questions should we be pursuing next? Mm -hmm. Thanks, it makes me feel important to be asked that question. <laughs> You're most welcome. <laughs> so I think I, I do have to say, I know I know you don't really want me to reflect on Sarah Matza's article, but I do want to say that what, what struck me as interesting about that article was not what she was saying about the field and you know about agency. Um, because as you know, as somebody who's written so carefully and interest, I love your, you know, your work on agency and okay. you're so, right? That it, it's this sort of, it's, it was this sort of lack of um, acknowledgement of how from within the field, historians who do call themselves at least at times, the his, historians of childhood, have thought very carefully about some of the issues that she was raising, right? Um, and I think a little more uh, acknowledgement of that would have been would have been great. So it wasn't even so much that I completely disagreed with what Marza was suggesting about the field. Uh, there was much I did agree with, but it was this sort of, but, but that's because I think if I consider myself as belonging to that field, at least on some days, uh, those are things that we grapple with and that you grapple with, right? And um, and what I did say um, in the pages of the HR, uh, and I think I titled my response is the history of childhood ready for the world, uh, was, and, and in saying that I wasn't sort of questioning whether uh, we can write histories of childhood for Asia, for Asia, for South Asia, for Africa, for Latin America, because obviously we have, right? In fact, most of the uh, folks who responded to uh, Sarah Madza's comment, a lot of us did work in other parts of the world, right? So, 
of course, it's of course the history of childhood is expansive enough to be valuable to um, other geographic locations and has been, and that we have and can continue to produce works on Indian childhoods or uh, Senegalese childhood, et cetera. But, but the point I think that, I, I think where the field is and could be going is to start thinking about how those locations then end up dislocating our ideas of childhood that were central to how the field was conceptualized uh, five to six, you know, five decades ago, right? So um, I think it's about how, by looking at the diversity of locations and looking at the world, thinking about, uh, you know, colonial context as central to the concepts of childhood that we work with, et cetera. And I think that's, 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 that's where I think the field is going and needs to go, is to take seriously histories of power and histories of difference and histories of colonialism and engage, I think, more explicitly with theory instead of shying away from it, right? So, so as, you know, as, as many of us are doing, as you are doing, right? To sort of use childhood to engage with post-colonial criticism, to engage with critical race theory, to engage with queer of color critiques, uh, and then to really start thinking about whether uh, the discussions that we've had about how do you retrieve, um, you know, children's voices from the sources that are not created by them. Do we look for scribbles? Do we, I mean, those questions can be changed when we, you know, start thinking about some of the concepts that we use, including age, as problems rather than sort of concrete categories of analysis that are stable, that look the same everywhere in the world, etc. Right. So letting the world sort of contaminate the field a little bit more is what I would like to see us going as a field. Yes, and I think you maybe you call it you're you're looking for a radical contamination, uh, which I you know jumped for joy when I read that. So yeah, I think this I think these are all really 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 important points, um, and I think in our current you know geopolitical moment they're more important than ever. So yeah, thank you, and I like you. I think I'm looking forward to seeing how these questions get taken up. Uh, over the next few years. So uh, it turns out that time really does fly when you're having fun talking about history. So I'm just gonna ask you one final question. Uh, and it's also okay if your answer here, obviously, if it doesn't relate too closely to the history of childhood and youth, because I know that you uh, have a bunch of that, yeah, that you that you work in a multiple uh, overlapping fields. So what's next? What projects, uh, what are you working on these days, Ishida? Um, so the quick answer to that question is these days, I'm working on very little uh, as we were uh, discussing because there's too much going on in the world. Uh, so we are all kind of coping and I just wanted to put it out there. But uh, what I would be working on if I were being better uh, is- um, I would say better, yeah. yeah 
Yeah, so I have a couple of projects that I am excited about and I hope to get back to uh, at some point. And one is actually relevant to the history of childhood and sort of builds on some of the ideas that we talked about um, that I was exploring in this book that you've read uh, so generously. And um, so what I want to do is track ideas of childhood in different uh, juridical traditions. So look at things like uh, look at sort of laws where the distinction between adult and child become important or where age sort of features, whether it's chronological age or other concepts of age, such as, um, you know, inheritance, when can you inherit property, uh, adoption, right, who can adopt at what age, who can get adopted, and so on. Um, besides looking at sort of labor and uh, sexual consent, which are um, explored in this book to a certain extent as well but sort of really uh, taking seriously and looking at uh, Hindu and Muslim legal traditions and sort of exploring them more. So um, we didn't end up talking about it too much, but in this chapter, like uh, about a third of the book actually does uh, deal with uh, Islamic juridical traditions or colonial sort of Muslim law. Um, and I, I, I just want to take that bit of the project and expand on it and see if some of my insights that are kind of generated by um, a less than intense understanding of these different <laughs> juridical traditions, how do they hold up when I'm really exploring them more fully? So, so the child in diff different juridical traditions is what I'm interested in. So that's one of the things. The other uh, project that I'm kind of working on or hope to be working on more intensely soon is a project on um, translating sex as a category of analysis for South Asian histories. And again, um, uh, as with this book, because I do kind of uh, want to grapple with the sort of Foucauldian way of thinking about the history of childhood, uh, sexuality rather, the, the child will sort of feature in that uh, project about sexuality as well in quite a sort of fundamental way. So. Wow, I can't wait to hear more about all of that and to, yeah, continue having these conversations. So thank you again so much for talking with me today, Tashida. Thank you, Christine. Thank you for listening to Shusai Podcasts. You can find more materials and features from the Society for the History of Children and Youth online, shcy.org.